2009, October 8th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 12, Climate Regulation and Climate Change in Earth's History. Well, we've been talking about the history of the Earth. Yesterday, we spent some time on the geologic history of the Earth. And you will notice that for a lecture entitled The History of the Earth, I seem to have stopped cold about 3.8 billion years ago with only minor mention of the eons that came after the Hadean. And part of the reason for that is the Hadean stands out from all the other eons of Earth's history because in the Hadean there, there is no evidence of life. Life may have arisen, but it was completely erased by any giant impacts during the period. It's only in the period going into the Archean and then, of course, up into the Proterozoic and Phenerozoic that we actually begin to see life. And so the Earth's history be begins to be more defined in terms of the combination of geology and life rather than just sort of pure geology like in the Hadean. We're going to touch on those eons, for the, the different eons for the history of life next week when we talk about life. But today I want to continue on this general theme of the Earth as a system and look back into the history of the Earth and look and see if there are other things we can see that are going to inform us about what is it that sets up the habitability of the Earth. Why do some eras have more life than others, and when did life finally actually arise? So today we're going to look at bringing now into the play the role of the atmosphere of the Earth, and we're going to be talking about climate regulation and climate change throughout Earth's history. So the basic ideas for today is to review Earth's climate through geological history and what that can teach us about what we should expect for habitability on the Earth. So the first thing is I just want to remind you of the greenhouse effect that we saw the other day in, in, the, uh, in the lecture on the Earth's atmosphere. The greenhouse effect plays an important role because it's one of the things that determines the mean temperature of the Earth. The fact that it's warmer today than it would be if with no atmosphere is due in part to the greenhouse effect. So it's a very important part of the understanding of Earth's climate. The second is I want to introduce the idea of the carbon dioxide cycle. Now we've already seen the CO2 cycle just briefly on the atmosphere, but today we're going to go into detail. The CO2 cycle is what regulates the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it turns out to be primarily driven by plate tectonics with contributions from weathering. Now if you put those two together, the carbon dioxide cycle and the greenhouse cycle actually form the primary pieces of the regulation mechanism for Earth's climate. In particular, the, the two of these act together like a kind of a thermostat, keeps control of the temperature in a room by causing what's called a negative feedback loop. And we'll look at that in some detail because it's important for understanding what happens for large-scale climate changes that have occurred in Earth's history is when that thermostat has been upset or literally broken by unusual events. Now, if we, once we've set up what the basis of the regulation of the Earth's, Earth's climate is, the question is, has the Earth's climate changed over geological history? The most obvious answer to that are these periods of ice, ice covering large fractions of the Earth, or glaciations. We often refer to them generically as ice ages. It turns out that a lot of these periods of ice ages tend to be correlated with cycles that we see astronomically, particularly cycles of variation in the Earth's orbit and the or Earth's tilt. There are other factors that come into play that can give rise to very deep periods of ice. And in fact, in recent years, people have begun to discuss unusually long and unusually deep periods of glaciation on the Earth that actually led to the entire planet being covered in ice from poles to equator. And this is often given the fairly evocative name of Snowball Earth. It's an example of the extremes to which the climate can be driven by changes or breakdowns in the climate regulation system. 
This is important to us because we have to understand how we get from the Hadean atmosphere, which is mostly carbon dioxide and no oxygen, to the nitrogen-rich, oxygen-rich atmosphere we breathe here on Earth today, and in fact, which, which animals and plants have been breathing for about half of the Earth's history. But how did we get to that point? And today is sort of looking at some of the pieces of how that occurred without the extra dimension of what the role of life is in playing, in playing its part in building up the Earth's atmosphere. So today we're going to talk about the generic pieces of climate regulation and climate change. The first thing I want to remind you of is the greenhouse effect. A basic fact you should remember is that right now in the present day atmosphere of the Earth, the Earth's surface is 35 degrees Celsius warmer than it would be if there was no atmosphere on the Earth. The equilibrium temperature of any body in the solar system is set by a balance between incoming sunlight and outgoing radiation from the thing being heated. Too much sunlight comes in, the temperature of the body will warm up until its radiative losses exactly match the amount of energy coming in. It's an exact balance. You can't make change for energy. You're either going to get some or you're going to lose some, but you always are going to have to come up with a balance of input versus output. You can't run deficits and you can't run surpluses. If you have a deficit of energy, you cool off. If you have a surplus of energy, you heat up and achieve a new equilibrium. Same thing happens in the Earth's atmosphere. But in the Earth's atmosphere, there's, there are additional effects in which the light coming down from the sun, if there was no atmosphere, 4% of that light would simply just bounce off the surface of the Earth, and 51%, 51% is absorbed by the oceans and atmosphere. The rest of the oceans and ground, 19% of the solar radiation is absorbed by the atmosphere, and about 30% is reflected back into space by a combination of clouds, ground, and of course a little bit of scattering off the atmosphere itself. Visible light comes in through the nearly transparent atmosphere, hits the Earth and warms it. When you warm a body, it emits thermal or infrared radiation. That thermal or infrared radiation does not see an, a transparent atmosphere, it sees an opaque atmosphere. The opacity in the atmosphere is provided by molecular absorption in the so-called greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And these gases are water vapor, carbon dioxide, and methane are the three strongest and there are other lesser contributors, for example, carbon um, ozone, carbon monoxide, and things like that. These are all molecules that have very, very strong absorption bands in the near to mid-infrared wavelength region that any of the radiation trying to escape from the Earth basically gets absorbed in the atmosphere and warms the atmosphere up. So the greenhouse effect acts as a kind of blanket. You trap some of the solar radiation that normally would escape into space, and you raise the global temperature overall. If you want to change the amount of greenhouse heating, all you have to do to a first approximation, given sunlight being constant, is change the composition of the atmosphere in terms of these gases. If you want more heating, you want a bigger blanket, you dump in more water vapor, or carbon dioxide, or methane. If you want to drop the amount of greenhouse heating, you deplete the carbon dioxide or water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere. You either add absorbers or remove absorbers. And that's what gives you the difference is the greenhouse effect. More carbon dioxide is more heating, less carbon dioxide is less heating. Carbon dioxide turns out to be the key, even though water vapor is in many ways a stronger greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide is the important one because unlike water vapor, carbon dioxide cannot precipitate out of the atmosphere by itself. It always stays as a gas unless water comes into play. And this 
role for water and the change of the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is regulated by something we refer to as the carbon dioxide cycle. So we're just ignoring for a moment any modern effects due to human beings deciding to burn stuff and making extra carbon dioxide. That comes outside this cycle. There is a natural cycling of carbon dioxide through the Earth's atmosphere. It's illustrated by this, this little cartoon from your textbook here called the carbon cycle. The carbon cycle works as follows. You've got carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere, water vapor, as the Earth is slightly cool enough for water to condense, forming droplets or raindrops, and falling to the ground. However, it turns out carbon dioxide is very easily soluble in water. Right? Soda pop is basically just carbon dioxide, high pressure dissolved into water, and then you throw some, some sugar junk into it and you get you know, your favorite soft drink. So water, is, water easily soaks up a little bit of carbon dioxide, and you form kind of a, a very mild acid called carbolic acid. It's basically carbon dioxide and water. So at, natural rain is actually naturally slightly acidic due to the carbon dioxide uptake. So the carbon dioxide, a little bit of carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere, and the raindrops hit the rock. If you put a mild acid on the rock, the mild acid etches the rock and begins to take minerals out of the rock and break it down. This is part of the process of weathering. There's also erosion from heavy flows of water if the rain comes down in torrents and so forth. So you begin to erode some of the rock and you're carrying the carbon dioxide with it and you carry that carbon dioxide rich water and other things with these sediments down into the rivers and eventually down into the oceans where they flow out and they begin to form sediments down deep in the oceans. But because they're coming in with this carbon dioxide dissolved water, those sediments become carbon dioxide rich. So I've now transported CO2 from the gas phase in the atmosphere to kind of locked up in this liquid phase in a kind of a mild acid by being dissolved in rainwater and kind of mix it in with some junk etched off the rocks in the oceans. Now the oceans have this carbon dioxide rich water and some chemistry begins to take over. This chemistry occurs in the presence of liquid water. If there's any calcium in the water and there are two sources of calcium. One is just natural calcium content and the other is if when you get into the phases when there's life on earth, calcium is a product, for example, of shells of microscopic sea creatures. Calcium reacts with carbon dioxide dissolved in water to form compounds called carbonates. In particular, one in particular called calcium carbonate is limestone. This calcium carbonate causes the dissolved gas carbon dioxide to precipitate out as a solid a carbonaceous stuff and sink to the bottom of the ocean, where it begins to pile up with all that other sedimentary material. So you start building up limestone down here on the floor of the oceans. So you've taken atmospheric carbon dioxide in gas form, dissolved it in water, transported it into the oceans where you bring it into liquid water contact with calcium. And liquid water chemistry, that's the key phrase, liquid water chemistry, acts to turn the dissolved carbon dioxide into calcium carbonate and other carbonate minerals. They then precipitate out and sink to the bottom and become part of the solid material of the seafloor. Those sediments build up and you build up, not surprisingly, carbonate-rich sedimentary rock. Now, the Earth's crust is not just sitting there as a solid piece. It's broken into 16 tectonic plates. In particular, the thin oceanic plates, if they run smack into a continental plate, are going to lose the head-on collision and are going to get pushed down below the bigger, denser, heavier continental plate through a process we saw before called subduction. 
So now I take this carbonaceous rock, which is bearing all the carbon dioxide that used to be in gas in the atmosphere, and I shove it deep into the interior of the Earth. As I go deep into the interior towards the mantle, the rock begins to heat up, and eventually it melts. When you melt carbonaceous rock, you release the carbon dioxide rocked inside that rock. However, the problem is this rock is not sitting on the surface. It's deep in the interior under high pressure. So the carbon dioxide gas now dissolves in the molten rock, just like carbon dioxide gas under pressure dissolves into soda pop in, in, in a bottle. And so it builds up carbon dioxide gas dissolved liquid rock. If you form a magma pocket and begin to work your way back to the surface, when you come out as a volcano, when the volcano erupts, you pop the top off the geological soda pop, and the carbon dioxide blows back into gas form in the atmosphere, closing the loop. So carbon dioxide is scrubbed out of the atmosphere by rainwater, turned into calcium carbonate and other carbonate minerals by chemistry in liquid water, subducted under the crust by plate tectonics, and then returned to back to the atmosphere by volcanism. So these are the pathways that carbon dioxide cycles around in the Earth's atmosphere. It's a very important cycle because it plays a very strong role combined with the greenhouse effect in regulating the Earth's climate. Because in addition to being what, the, what carbon dioxide does in all the chemistry here, remember carbon dioxide is a principal greenhouse gas. So the operation of this carbon cycle depends critically upon three basic things. Okay? It depends upon liquid water in the form of either both raindrops to do the atmosphere scrubbing and oceans to provide the place for carbon dioxide liquid chemistry basically dissolves and gives you a way to scrub out atmospheric carbon dioxide. Plate tectonics job is to turn the solidified carbon dioxide rich sediments back into CO2 gas but locking it deep in rock and then the indirect role of tech plate tectonics is active volcanism. Gives you the means by which that carbon dioxide dissolved rock makes its way to the surface as magma and releases its carbon dioxide back. So for the carbon dioxide cycle to work, you must have liquid water on the planet and you must have active plate tectonics. Shut down either of those two processes and the carbon dioxide cycle comes to a halt. So one way you could halt the uh, carbon dioxide cycle is freeze the oceans. Right? It's no longer a liquid water. You no longer get carbon dioxide chemistry. Another way to shut down the, the cycle, shut down volcanism. Have a planet so old its interior begins to solidify. It's no longer molten. Plate tectonics shuts down. The carbon dioxide cycle on that planet will shut down. So it relies sensitively on the presence of liquid water and the presence of plate tectonics. Now, if you take now the two pieces, the CO2 cycle and the greenhouse effect together, we actually end up with a classic negative feedback loop that serves to regulate global temperature just like a thermostat. So carbon dioxide cycle and the greenhouse together combined act like a kind of global thermostat for the Earth. Here's how it works. So I'm taking the picture on the previous one. I'm just going to blow through it now. We're going to look at the two halves of the feedback cycle. Let's say the global temperature suddenly dropped a bit. Who knows why? We'll just simply let the temperature drop, some cycle of lots of cold weather for some long period of centuries. Well, what happens is, as colder temperatures begin to occur, there is less rainfall. If there's less rainfall, there's going to be less carbon dioxide scrubbed out of the atmosphere. So in net, with let 
with less rainfall, you get less carbon dioxide scrubbing. So if you get less carbon dioxide scrubbing, that means there's going to be a net buildup of CO2, because the volcanoes are still sitting there belching out the CO2, but the rainwater is not removing it from the atmosphere as fast as it used to, and so you get a net buildup of CO2. But if you get a net buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere, you strengthen the greenhouse effect because you increase the atmosphere's opacity to infrared photons. More sunlight is trapped by the heavier CO2 atmosphere, and the temperature begins to rise. So a cooling event leads to more CO2 getting left in the atmosphere, which increases the greenhouse effect, which raises the temperature back into balance. So that's one aspect of the negative feedback loop. A negative feedback loop is where a change in a parameter leads to physical processes which produce the compensating reaction to restore balance. It's a stable equilibrium, or more or less stable equilibrium. So this is what happens if the temperature drops. Now what if it hap happens if the temperature overheats? What if the temp global temperature warms above the equilibrium set up by the thermostat? Well, if you get warmer temperatures, rainfall begins to increase. You get more evaporation of water in, out of the oceans into the atmosphere, and you get more rain. As you get more rainfall, you scrub more and more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, making a net deficit of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. When you remove carbon dioxide, you remove greenhouse gas, and you weaken the greenhouse effect. As the greenhouse effect gets weaker, infrared radiation from the Earth can escape more, which means there's less global heating. And therefore, the net effect is, if you overheat, you scrub out more carbon dioxide, and then you just simply drop the temperature back. So what happens is, overheating leads to a change in the carbon dioxide content that produces a compensatory cooling by weakening the greenhouse effect. So together, the combination of the carbon dioxide cycle and the greenhouse effect work together to make up a pretty well stable regulating thermostat for the atmosphere. Now how stable this is, and whether it's a deep well of stability or kind of just teetering on the brink, is actually kind of hard to tell. But it turns out it's an equilibrium that can be easily upset. So once you've established this balance, the question is how stable is it over long periods of time? Just left to its own devices, plate tectonics, volcanism, liquid water, the carbon dioxide cycle would do a pretty good job of keeping the Earth's temperature within the bounds of a few degrees Celsius. The problem is the Earth does not live all by itself. It is not a closed system. There are outside influences that can come into play that can begin to upset the carbon dioxide cycle. They act outside the regular action of that regulation cycle I've just described. And some of the influences that turn out to be important through, through history turn out to be these. The first of these is, remember, that the heating ultimately is coming from sunlight. So what if the sunlight changes its brightness? What if the sun gets brighter or fainter? It does, in fact, change its brightness over geologic timescales. The other way in which I could change the sun's brightness is I could change the distance of the Earth from the sun. What if the orbit of the Earth were to change in such a way that the Earth spent more time further from the sun than it did through most times of the year? The further you are from a light source, the fainter the light source by the square of the distance. So a very small change in the distance of the Earth from the sun could have a very dramatic effect on the amount of sunlight being received. That would lower the amount of solar heating. You can also change the tilt of the Earth's orbit. 
That changes the amount of direct sunlight received by different landforms in different latitudes. If the Earth tilts more towards the sun, you get more sunlight during the summertime in high latitudes. If the Earth tilts away from the sun, you get less sunlight at high latitudes. That changes the local climate as a function of latitude on the Earth. So those are outside the cycle changes that change the heating, whether you're getting a lot more sunlight or a lot less. The other thing that can happen is a big rock or an asteroid could come in and smack the Earth. We know that asteroidal impacts do occur every few million years. When these impacts occur, they can throw up immense clouds of debris and dust. About 65 million years ago, a giant asteroid impact down around in the Yucatan Basin probably led to a, a worldwide cooling event that, among other things, wiped out most of the dinosaurs. It's pretty clear from looking at some of the, the data which are now being collected around, around the Earth geologically is that there was an unusual episode of global cooling that immediately followed the impact of this asteroid because an immense plume of dust was thrown up in the air and that dust reflects away sunlight and that cools the Earth. So asteroidal impacts could in fact dramatically alter the, the particulate content of the Earth's atmosphere and upset the heating and cooling balance nicely being regulated by the carbon dioxide thermostat. And finally, more recently, and certainly very much in the news these days, is there are other ways to make carbon dioxide outside of the process of volcanism. Turns out human activity, especially after industrialization, is injecting massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere. This injection of carbon dioxide is occurring outside the normal cycle that involves volcanism and, out and, and rain out. And so why people have become, begun to be concerned about this is you're altering the atmospheric opacity. You're altering the greenhouse content of the Earth's atmosphere, but you're injecting it from outside the natural cycle. And so the question is whether that balance is sufficiently delicate. You could push it in a direction, not that's going to hurt the Earth. You're, you, who, the, the statement, we have to save the Earth, is really, we have to save ourselves. The question is whether we can tip the balance of climate change in a direction that might cause troubles for human societies. And that's really what the argument is. The scientific argument is there that human impact is occurring in the atmosphere. That's pretty well settled. The question is what the long-term outcome can be. That's not just a scientific question. It's also an economic and political question. And it's not one we're going to talk about much today. Because today I want to really concentrate on climate cycle changes that have occurred in Earth's history. But bear in mind that the current discussions going on about climate change and global warming are related. The same physics, the same processes are involved. The difference is we've just found a new channel for changing or affecting the carbon cycle. And so the question I think you want to ask is, just like a thermostat, you know, if your thermostat's working pretty good and it's cold weather outside, do you really want to mess with the thermostat? And that's where a lot of the questions come in. Is it benign or not? We don't know. Do you want to bet wrong? Hmm. Okay. Well, let's go back in geologic history. Let's stay away from the political tricky ones. Turns out if we look back through geological time, we see evidence in the geological record for long periods in which the Earth's weather was extremely cold. And in fact, large portions of the Earth's surface were covered in ice. Certainly, traditionally, people talk about the Ice Age, which was the last major period of glaciation, which ended about 10,000 years ago. Probably important for human beings, because at the end of that Ice Age is when human beings began to radiate their way into various environments, and well, we now rule the Earth. But certainly, if we look further back in geologic time, 
we can find periods where we see evidence of significant glaciation. There's a number of lines of evidence that can be brought into play. One of them is glaciation produces geological markers. It deposits sediments in certain places, and certain kinds of water or ice-borne sediments are very distinctive in the geological record. So you can see, for example, in a sedimentary layer, when a, a, when a volcano repaved the ground or when a glacier repaved the ground. And so you can look in the geologic record all over the planet and see different episodes where there was clearly glacial deposits as opposed to just water deposits. They're very distinctive geologically. The other way that you can tell is looking at the oxygen abundances, the oxygen isotope ratios. There's this number here you're going to see a lot in these plots called delta 18O. The two major isotopic forms of oxygen are oxygen-16 and oxygen-18. Oxygen-16 is light oxygen. That's most of the oxygen we're breathing. But a tiny fraction is in the form of oxygen with two extra neutrons in the nucleus called oxygen-18. And it's a stable nucleus. It turns out that if you make a molecule of water out of oxygen-16 versus oxygen-18, both are H2O, both have the same chemistry, but the one made with heavy oxygen is about 10% heavier. That 10% makes a difference not for the chemistry, but for the rate at which those molecules will evaporate or condense. And it turns out that you get differential rates of evaporation or condensation between heavy water and light water. So if water is, if the weather is really warm, it turns out you actually favor evaporation of light oxygen water over heavy oxygen water. And so you tip the balance at warm temperatures, you get a net deficit of oxygen-18. If it's very cold temperatures, you basically form, uh, favor condensation back into liquid or formation of ices, and you get a net surplus of oxygen-18. Now, we're talking parts per million here. So it's really tiny, but it turns out to be very sensitive. And it gives us a very powerful what's called paleothermometer. There are other things we can do, too. Certain forms of life, certain fossils, take up oxygen and incorporate it like into their shells or their bones. They take up oxygen-16 and oxygen-18 look the same to them chemically. They take up those oxygen ratios, uh, isotope ratios, from their environments. And so they freeze into their fossil skeletons the oxygen-18 to oxygen-16 isotope ratio when they lived. After they die, they just become rock, and there's no more metabolism going on. There's no way for new oxygen to get in or out. It's slight contamination, but it's very strongly correlated. So we can actually measure to within a few degrees Celsius the global temperature running back millions and millions of years using these various techniques. They're very powerful techniques for studying what's called paleoclimatology. So here's an example of one of these studies using this oxygen-18 to oxygen-16 ratio, measuring the temperature. So you get surplus of oxygen-18 relative to the mean, and it's cold, deficit of oxygen-18, and it's warm. We'll see plots like this quite a bit. This plot shows the current age right here on the left all the way out to 542 million years. This is basically the entire Phanerozoic. So starting with the Cambrian and the explosion of multicellular life 545 million years ago, all the way to the present day. And what's seen is this average temperature. The average temperature change we're talking about here is maybe plus or minus 3, 4, 5 degrees Celsius. But there are very clearly cold periods and very warm periods in between. And we call these inter-cold periods the so-called glacial periods. And you can see there's both short-term variations and very long-term trends here. Now, some of these long-term trends may be related to two factors. One of them is the sun, in fact, does change its brightness over as it begins to age. But that's a process that's very, very slow. It occurs over billions of years. 
The other thing that can change is the arrangement of continents and oceans. Because of global dr continental drift, the arrangement of continents and the fraction of the Earth, that's land surface and water surface, has changed throughout geological time. Sometimes the continents are all bunched up together into one supercontinent. Sometimes they're spread out over the middle latitudes. Sometimes there's continents of both highs and low latitudes. That mix of continents changes, for example, whether you form land ice at the poles or water ice at the poles. And so those, again, the, the time scale of continental drift is many hundreds of millions of years, or, or tens of millions of years. And some of that is probably responsible for some of this variation. You change the heating and cooling balance by changing the mix of land and ocean underneath the sunlight at high and low latitudes, and that has an influence on whether you enter a whether you tip the reg thermal regulation balance into cold equilibrium temperatures or warm equilibrium temperatures. And so you get these long-term periods of glaciation. You'll notice, interestingly, even though we talk a lot about global warming today, it turns out we are just coming out of a particularly cool period in Earth's history. Now, let's, if we look more recently, we have a lot more fine-grained geological tools. The further you go back in geological history, the harder it is to get really detailed information because you've got to go back through a lot of reprocessed junk. Locally, we have a lot of other things we can use to get a handle on what the local climate was. So now what we're looking at in this plot, the top plot here shows the last plot was the last 500 million years. Let's zoom in on just 1% of that, the last 5.5 million years. And we see, in fact, that we're in a period of sort of net lower temperatures with somewhat higher temperatures kicking in about 3 million years ago. Human beings arose as, as recognizably in here around 1 or 2 million years ago, and certainly recognizable modern humans, Homo sapiens, only in sort of this very last zone down in here, really coming to their fore in the end of the last glacial period. Turns out if you look at this, it looks like there's just an awful lot of noise, but in fact this up and down cycling has a very regular periodicity to it. Glaci the climate goes warm, the climate goes cold, the climate goes warm, and the climate goes cold again. And if you look at these up and down jumps, you'll see they occur, here zooming in on the last now 500,000 years, so we've gone two factors of 10 now, we now zoom in, and we see that those peaks occur roughly every 100,000 years. So there's 100,000 year spikes of relatively warm temperatures, followed by periods of relatively cold temperatures. Temperature change can be quite big, down as far as minus 6 or minus 8 degrees Celsius below the global average. Now where these data come from, the 5 million years comes <coughs> primarily from looking at sediment cores. You dig into ocean um, sediments, and you look, for example, for fossil foraminifera, which take up oxygen in making their shells, and you can measure the oxygen-18 ratio inside those fora. That's where you'll see the term here, benthic carbonates. Benthic zone is the seafloor zone of the ocean. So benthic foraminifera, benthic fora, are the re relations to that. So here's a use of fossils. They basically are convenient little carriers of oxygen isotope ratios. Now, if you want to go back more recently, Turns out if you go down to Antarctica, Antarctica has been accumulating ice on the Antarctic continent for the last roughly half million years. That ice accumulates, you can drill down into the ice and you pull up this layer cake of sedimentary ice. The ice traps the atmosphere and the water that was frozen out. When you melt it and put it through a gas analyzer, you can read off the oxygen-18 ratios in that. 
One of the most thick portions of the Antarctic ice is under the Vostok station that the Soviets and now the Russians still run. And these are now about 480,000 years worth of Vostok ice cores show this pattern of warming and cooling, warming and cooling roughly 100,000 years. You can also measure the ice volume, whether you lay down a lot of ice during a year or only a small amount of ice. And interestingly, there's a, 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 um, during warm periods, there's a low amount of ice. During the deepest cold, you lay down a lot of ice per year. So we see the correlation of not only these isotope ratios, but we see the amount of ice forming going up. This other curve up here for Epica is a European ice core consortium that's also got the same basic data from a different part of Antarctica. So what we see is about a 100,000 year periodicity, in round numbers, it's not perfectly periodic, of warming and glaciation, warming and glaciation. So clearly this um, regulation cycle in the Earth's atmosphere is not a perfect equilibrium, but it's got a slight little oscillation in it. Something is driving an oscillation in this. The time scale of 100,000 years is really short. It's a puzzling one. It's way too short for solar radiation increases because that takes billions of years. It's way too short for continental drift because that takes tens of millions of years. 100,000 years is just kind of in a funny spot. But there is a place where you get hundreds, thousands, 10,000 year periods, and that's astronomically. Okay. Now, so we'll come to that in just a second. So here's a, a good close-up, for example, of some very interesting data. Remember, the ice traps the atmosphere. So the other thing you can measure is the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere during these periods of warming and glaciation. So again, on top is the Vostok ice core data going back about 480 million years. Temperature range from minus 8 to plus 2 degrees Celsius compared to the current day average temperature. You see during the warm periods, there's a spike of high carbon dioxide concentration, stronger greenhouse warming. During the cooler periods, less carbon dioxide, less greenhouse effect. You also see this sort of anti-correlation down here in dust. When it gets cold, it gets dry. And so you blow dust around and rainfall begins to shut down. So there are pieces of that carbon dioxide cycle writ large now recorded in the ice cores coming out of Vostok. So the carbon dioxide cycle is a very long time time scale. So something in here is causing a roughly 100,000 year forcing period on the system. Well, it turns out that those recent ice ages, people noticed right away the regular occurrence of the glaciation periods. And a, a, a Serbian mathematician by the name of Milankovic noticed that that corresponded to beat periods between various natural cycles, not in the Earth's regulation system, but in the motions of the Earth through the heavens. In particular, he noticed that there were three cycles. Now, let me give you an example of way in which the configuration of the Earth can change in a periodic way that has an effect on this. The Earth's axis is tilted with respect to the plane of the orbit. So, for example, during northern summer, the Earth's north pole is tilted towards the Earth, and the Earth's south pole is tilted away from the Earth. Right now, we're in the position where the sun is basically coming down on the equator. We're in the equinoxes, and we're moving towards winter when the south pole is pointing towards the sun and the north pole is pointing away, towards the, away from the sun towards night. So we get six months of global night in the north, and six months of global daytime in the southern hemisphere at the time of the winter solstice. It's this tilt of the Earth by 23 and a half degrees in round numbers that gives us the cycle of the seasons. The ellipticity of the Earth's orbit doesn't come into play here because the amount of difference of sunlight from close to the sun and far from the sun is only at the few percent level. So we get our seasons because of the tilt of the Earth's orbit. 
But the tilt is not exactly 23 and a half degrees. It actually wobbles back and forth a little bit between 22 and 25 degrees. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually plays a role. And it occurs on a 41,000 year cycle. So if I want to see the Earth when it had the same extreme tilt as before, I have to wait 41,000 years. So there is a cycle that gives you tens of thousands of years. Now it turns out if the sun is less tilted, that means there's more sunlight at high latitudes during the winter and summer, and therefore there's milder seasonal variations. I get less big contrast between summer and winter. If the Earth's pole was perfectly aligned, perfectly perpendicular to the Earth's orbit, we'd have no seasons. It would be permanent spring. So the tilt, the, more, the bigger the tilt, the greater the seasonal temperature variations from hot to cold. So if I get more tilt, I get deeper winters, hotter summers. But those deeper winters at the high latitudes may be the one that tipped the balance. If the season is so short, the previous year's snow hasn't had a chance to melt if it's so deep. So this is a place where you can see a climate forcing due to changing the solar illumination due to the Earth's tilt. Well, what Milankovitch found was not only the Earth's tilt variations can come into play, but also changes in the ellipticity of the Earth's orbit. The Earth's orbit varies from pretty close to circular to quite a bit out of circular. It's only a small amount of variation, and it's fairly complicated, but it occurs, so we get the tilt axis variation occurs every 41,000 years. The change of the axis tilt changes the depth of the season, the depth of winter or the shallowness of winter and summer. The more tilt, the greater the depth of the seasons, the depth of the variations. Changes in ellipticity occurs either giving you less solar radiation when you're far away on the elliptical path, more solar radiation when you're close. Turns out that's a very complicated cycle of three cycles that occur on 95, 125, and 413,000 years. One of those combinations adds up to very close to, but not quite, 100,000 years. So this may in fact be the primary periodicity giving rise to a 100,000 year natural period in the system. Finally, the Earth's axis wobbles around like a top on a 26,000 year period called the precession of the equinoxes. So what these do is, the changes in the Earth's tilt affect the depth of the seasons. The changes in the ellipticity tell you the, change the length of the seasons. And you can imagine that if your winter turns out to be out of phase with the change in ellipticity. So while you may have a big tilt and a deeper winter, but if winter's shorter, you don't get much effect. But what if they work in the same reinforcing direction so that the depth of your winter is during a very long winter season and you have warmer summer, but warmer summer is shorter, you get a huge contrast between winter and summer. And then finally, precession of the equinoxes changes the timing subtly. It basically changes you so that every now and then, as you wobble through, you have the precession rolling through like this period up here, the obliquity, the tilt of the axis going like this, and here's the eccentricity. Look at that 100,000 year peaks compared to the stages of glaciation. This was very suggestive. It really looks like this is the, the answer. Now what's happening is we're seeing what's called solar forcing. We're seeing changes in the amount of solar heating due to the natural cycles of changes in the Earth's orbit and changes in the Earth's tilt of its axis, which are causing, to, causing every now and then to get into a period where we reinforce unusually strong, heavy winters with light, mild summers. 
So the previous year's snow does not melt in the summertime, and so the next winter just adds snow on top of the old snow. And you come back around and you add snow on top of old snow. And now you start getting a point where you're building up snow. As you build up snow, snow is shiny. Shiny snow reflects sunlight. More sunlight reflecting off the snow is less sunlight available to heat the atmosphere, which makes the atmosphere colder, which makes the winters colder, which gives you more snow, which gives you more snow left over so that you snow on last year's snow. And I've just described what's called a positive feedback loop. Positive feedback can work up to a point that you kind of upset the cycles, and so you can get enormous swings in either snow cover or, done the opposite way, long, hot summers where you always melt the previous year's snow, you get no increase in snow and the global temperature warms. And that upsets or untips the carbon dioxide regulation cycle. Now, this is fairly complicated, but the basic bottom line is Earth's orbital motions play a role in setting up these long-term cycles. Well, how low, how deep can it go? One extreme is called desert Earth, and that may have occurred at various times, but the really interesting phase, or hothouse Earth, the really interesting phase is in the very distant past. There are two periods that are seen in the late Proterozoic, about 750 to 580 million years ago, just before the beginning of the Phanerozoic period, and possibly as early as 2.4 to 2.2 billion years ago, at the beginning of the Proterozoic period, in which there's evidence of not only glaciation, but global glaciation. The indications from these studies are that there were very deep freezes lasting a million years or more. Those deep freezes, in fact, caused an average global temperature of 50 degrees below zero Celsius. That's just plain cold by anybody's definition. That's wintertime temperatures in Antarctica, but now the average over the Earth. Under those conditions for a million years or so, you will freeze the oceans to one kilometer of depth. So imagine the oceans covered by a one kilometer thick ice cap. If this occurs, if you tip the Earth, or not, well, should I say tip the Earth, if the Earth gets into one of these cycles of deep, deep glaciation and freezes the Earth's oceans, you shut down the carbon dioxide cycle because you close down the route by which carbon dioxide gets out of the atmosphere and gets into the oceans. And then some really interesting stuff happens. This, this particular phase in geological history has been given a name. It's called Snowball Earth. I believe it was Joe Kirschvink at Caltech in the 1980s who first suggested this phase. It's still somewhat controversial. There's still some people who say that this couldn't actually get to a full computer simulated Snowball Earth. Other people say it was close enough that it doesn't matter whether it's totally frozen or not. Here's roughly how Snowball Earth works. It's caused by runaway cooling in polar, in polar ice. At various times, continental drift put most of the continental landmass down at low latitudes around the equator. And there was no land. There was no Antarctica or Arctic continent. Just purely water ice up there. You get into one of these cycles where you start building up very cold, deep winters. And you start building up a lot of polar sea ice. When you start building up the polar sea ice, you start messing with the carbon dioxide cycle. As you begin to grow the carbon, uh, you begin to grow the sea ice very rapidly. It easily spreads across the ocean surface. The shininess of the Earth begins to go up because snow is like 90 times shinier than regular ground. So you lose solar radiation and the global temperature begins to drop. As the global temperature begins to drop, the polar caps begin to croach closer and closer down towards the equator. Eventually, you reach the point that you basically shut down the uh, 
you get so much cooling catastrophe going on from the increased albedo, the increased shininess of the Earth, that you basically freeze the planet over. So you shut down the carbon dioxide cycle. But here's the important part. That shutdown in the carbon dioxide cycle is what saves the planet, if you will. Because while you shut down the carbon dioxide going dissolved into ocean water, because it isn't raining anymore, it's bone dry, it's a frozen world, you haven't shut down the volcanoes. Plate tectonics is the other half of the cycle, remember. With the volcanoes continually outgassing, dumps carbon dioxide, and that carbon dioxide has nowhere to go but in the atmosphere. As it goes in the atmosphere, it steps up the greenhouse effect, and the temperature suddenly swings to very large temperatures, perhaps as much as plus 50 degrees Celsius, and within a few thousand years, completely melts all the ice, and you get a hothouse Earth. Once you melt the ice and you get liquid water, the carbon dioxide cycle kicks back into place, and the system works its way back into balance. So you end up getting huge concentrations of carbon dioxide because there's nowhere for it to go from volcanism, and you melt the snowball Earth. So it's not a permanent process. If there was no plate tectonics, however, and no volcanism, then it would be a permanent process. It would never have a way to recover. So the bottom line to this is that the Earth has experienced repeated changes in its climate over its very long history. Negative and positive feedback cycles are at work that are very complicated and cannot be predicted easily. And it's an interplay between not only plate tectonics and atmospheric composition, but also astronomical effects. And we're going to come back to this idea of massive climate changes and changes in the past because it has deep implications for the history of life on Earth and the long-term habitability of the Earth and perhaps Earth-like planets around other stars. See you all tomorrow.